0: he said, Harry, you're out of business in three months. I said, no, we're not. He said, well, you've got three months of cash left. I said, well, well, yeah, you know, that's how startups work. We raise money every couple of years. But if we're being acquired by you, we're not out of business. I assume you're going to take over our payroll." And he said, no, 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 no. We're a publicly traded company. You know, we don't move that fast. It's going to take six to 12 months. And My heart just sunk.
1: Welcome to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Surter. This is the show that puts you in the room with the UK's top entrepreneurs so you can learn from their successes and failures and discover stories that you just won't hear anywhere else. Today, we're talking to Harry Hurst, a serial entrepreneur and Englishman in Miami, about his journey from selling clothes with his dad in village markets to selling his first startup to a unicorn and looking well on track with his second. That startup is called Pipe. And they are announcing the most extraordinary funding round we've heard in years, on the day this podcast is being published. So tune in for the inside scoop on that investment and finding out what Pipe does, because they're creating a completely new category, and they've been doubling every month since they launched. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to the start. London, to be precise. I actually, if we take it all the way back,
0: I spent the first two years of my life living in Israel, but I was born in London. All right, all right, London, Israel, same difference. My mum my and dad, they wanted to live in Israel. My dad couldn't make his business work out there. So we ended up actually moving back when I was two years old. Fast forward a few years, at age five, my dad moved back to Manchester and he pretty much spent most of his time there. And that's when stuff really sort of got hard for me, my mum, my brother and my sister kind of financially speaking, down in London. So much so to the point that my mom actually had to go on benefits, which in the US is the equivalent of welfare. But that pretty much saved us. You know, we, we were on benefits for a decade, and we lived off 90 pounds per week. So it's about, what, like 100, just about $100, $110 or so a week. And then my mom was able to earn an extra 50 pounds. And she was a piano teacher. Uh, she's an incredibly gifted, classically trained pianist. And I guess we kind of owe our life to music because that was a that, that's what enabled us to get that extra £50 a week that, I guess, if you add it all up, we were living off about £600 a month less family of four. It, it wasn't easy. And what's even more insane about the whole thing that just doesn't fit the narrative in any way um, but was really formative for me was that when I was four before my dad left and moved to Manchester, they, my parents really cared about education and they enrolled me into a private school, right? And you know, my grandfather had passed away a couple years before that when I was two and he had left just enough money for my mom to keep me in that private school until I was 10, until I was able to move to a state school, um, which is obviously state-sponsored and free. But, you know, as I said, that was a huge part of what kind of made me who I am, because what I ended up finding myself is, you know, I was a I was a young kid with a family on benefits, on government benefits, living off 600 pounds a month. And I was surrounded by, you know, people that could afford private school. And they seemingly had everything that I wanted, but nothing that I had yeah these kids with nice houses, and from a naive child's perspective, they had seemingly functional families I mean, looking back on it, it's funny to think you know how dysfunctional they probably were, but <laughs> when I was going around there at least to their houses, uh it seemed to be everything that I didn't have when I went home to my reality so the net net there is that I actually became this like massively insecure kid, not only socially but you know food insecure, financially insecure but I think that was the, the, as I said, like the formation of Harry Hurst the hungry, ambitious, immigrant entrepreneur. I can think it, I think it can like really be attributed to, to those times, those formative years. You know, I saw the world for what it really is because the world's a tough place. You're, you're not wrapped up in cotton wool. So I think I had very early exposure to what it would be like to have to fend for yourself. And I think that's a trait that, every successful entrepreneur really needs, because effectively, you're battling against the rest of the world. So I wouldn't have realized it at the time. But retrospectively, I can certainly say that that that's what it gave me for sure.
1: So why entrepreneurship? Why do you think that that was something that you gravitated towards? Like, I haven't heard anything yet um, in your formative years that you would necessarily think uh, would, would, would drive you into that? What was your path to getting there?
0: I think I was always an entrepreneur. I, I've never had, you know, a, a, a real job. I didn't really have a choice, you know, growing up. I had to, you know, as you know, as I mentioned, you know, we weren't living off much money. So anything that I had in my teenage years, I kind of had to hustle for. And all of the cliche, normal things I did, selling on eBay, setting up those kind of stores. And even going back earlier, my father is still to this day, he still does the same thing and always was an entrepreneur. He. He never really had a job, um, at least during my lifetime. As as long as I was alive, he was always doing his own thing, mostly in the fashion business, uh, in the rag trade, as we call it in the UK.
1: Schmutter trade, mate. The schmutter
0: business, yeah. The schmutter. Business. <laughs> That's exactly what my dad was in as well. Yeah, but but you know, my dad, my dad tried to find his feet in that business, uh, and he tried to play in, in really big leagues. He was really ambitious, and he ended up building you know, a very humble business in the markets, and not the financial markets that I play in today, but the traditional markets as we know them in the UK, where, you know, you set up your store and you sell clothes. I mean, he chose to sell clothes. You could sell anything that's legal. And he still does that to this day, bless him. He he gets up really early in the morning, and that's his passion. He loves going and just dealing with the people. And he brought me from approximately the age of eight. I used to spend summers with him and he would bring me onto the market stalls. And these are not, you know, my dad lives in Manchester, right, so we were going to the ends of the the country, places that most of the listeners to your podcast probably haven't even heard of, really small little villages across the UK. So from a very early age, I was, you know, exposed to not only learning how to sell, and deal with people from all different walks of life but also to the reality that this kind of like bubble that i lived in in london was was not necessarily full and final there was there's other people out there living very very different lives so i owe a lot of that to him as well in bringing me every summer not only to be able to earn a little bit of extra money with him but to be able to to kind of learn how to confidently sell and deal with people from all walks of life.
1: So how do you think your upbringing has shaped the way that you think about challenges and think about yourself as well and the choices that you've made? I think it's made my career. When I think
0: about it, if my career is a personification of me, and I think a lot of people kind of feel that way, if I'm the product of my upbringing, then I guess my upbringing, you know, it's causation at most. And at the very least, it's association, right? So yeah, my, my career looks a lot like my upbringing and my life. You know, it's it's non-traditional, it's risky, it's rebellious in some ways. But, you know, thank God it, it's, it's all seeming to come together.
1: Just thinking about this um, scenario with your dad. So you mentioned that he left and then it was your mum helping on benefits. What's the story there then? Like, do you still have a relationship with him?
0: So I have an incredibly close relationship with both of them today, but it's taken a lot of work, right? It's had its ups and downs over over the last couple of decades. And I'm extremely thankful to both of them for for different reasons. You know, My dad is a completely reformed character these days. He's one of the kindest humans that I know. Uh, He faced his own sets of challenges everyone does when, when I was growing up and had his own you know, reasons for, for everything that, that he went through. Um, probably you know, a lot of it to do with his childhood. But today, he's one of my closest confidants, one of my biggest supporters, and we have an incredibly close relationship, but it's taken time to, to develop that. We have, we have a more of a best friend relationship. It's great. I'm very thankful for it. And, you know, with respect to my mother, She's also just a huge champion of everything that I I do. I'm very fortunate in that, you know, I have some friends that their parents, you know, are quite controlling over sort of their career and how they want them to live their lives. I, you know, when I told my mother that I wanted to move to America, she said, you know, amazing. You know, she's been incredibly supportive of everything that I've wanted to do. So I definitely have her to thank for that.
1: Join us after this quick break to hear about Harry's journey to the US, the creation of his first big business, and how ending up two months away from financial disaster led to one of the most important introductions of his life. I don't know you from England, but I do know you from being an English entrepreneur, which is unusual. But back in the day when I was running Gravel, and I was actually considering the American market, I went out to LA, and a mutual contact, uh, Errol Damlin, who's the founder of Wonga, um, put us in touch. And I was, as you know, like a massive, massive fan of Skirt, your product at the time, because it solved a huge problem. So anyone that's ever flown into LA knows what an absolute nightmare it is to literally even just get from the airport to rent a car there because it's so big. I loved your approach with Skirt, which I want you to talk about rather than me, because it was literally just classic startup breaking all of the rules and finding finding a way. So what was, what was Skirt? Um, And before we get into that, I guess, like, what was the motivation for starting it, for moving to, I'm assuming you didn't just start it in the UK and move to America, but I actually don't know. So tell us about what drove you to move to America and how you started that company.
0: Yeah, so let's take a couple steps back, because I had decided, you know, from a very young age that I wanted to be in America. It's, It's incredibly hard, and I'm sure you've looked into this yourself than to to emigrate to America and be able to work here. They don't make it easy, um, but it is worth it. When I was a kid at about 10 years old, my grandmother moved to San Diego, and I was fortunate enough to be able to visit her twice, I remember, and I, I remember both trips super vividly because I just absolutely fell in love with the West Coast It's, you know, it's the antithesis of what we experience in London in every way, shape or form, for better or for worse, in some ways. But I absolutely loved it. And I fell in love with the whole construct of the American dream. You know, as, as kids growing up in London, we watch a lot of TV and movies and we get bought into this idea of the American dream. And then you come and actually see it. And for me, the thing that really opened my eyes was, you know, no one was ashamed to think really big. You discuss big ideas with people, and they don't think you're batshit crazy. Whereas I think in the UK, it's a little bit taboo to think that big. It's like, oh, that guy, there's the crazy guy that thinks about these like, crazy, wacky, big ideas. And I think it's probably getting better over time as we see more successful companies like Wonga, like TransferWise, and you know, coming out of Europe. But at least when we were growing up, I'm sure you can attest to this, it's tough being the kid that thinks big. So that's why I fell in love with the idea of moving to America, and I had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to be there, but I knew it was going to be a long path. So I spent my formative years of my career, from my late teens to my early 20s, just building various different businesses that had no real equitable value. I was just kind of hustling to, to make money. These were cash flowing business, bootstrapped companies, but not necessarily tech enabled. And I have a computer science background, right? I studied computer science from the age of 11. Um, so I always wanted to build something in tech, but I knew I wasn't gonna build that in the UK. I wasn't even going to try to build a tech company in the UK because there was just no real semblance of a venture ecosystem. So. With that in mind, working towards getting to the U.S. being my goal, I was setting up companies. So I had one company that was in the schmutter business and I was, uh, you know, clearing discount designer clothing into TK Maxx, Costco, clients like that. And this one, I was 18 years old. So I was already learning how to deal with people. A lot the most people in that industry are significantly older than 18. We were definitely the youngest people in that trade. So I was learning how to sell all around the world to different people, build relationships, etc had various other projects, lots that, you know, rose and and failed. I think the most impactful one, um, and most successful one that I started uh, was when I met someone who's one of my closest friends to this day, a guy called Paul Bogle. And he gave me an opportunity to to build a recruitment company with him because, you know, recruitment and headhunting consultancy is effectively taking the skill set of being able to, you know, convince people to move to a different job, convince people to join other people's mission, etc. And I got good at that naturally through my company building process. And that's the last company that I built in the UK before I sold it, just before I left in 2014. And my journey to leaving, sort of segue into the conception of skirt, which was your original question. At the time that I was building that recruitment company with Paul, I was living with one of my best friends who was forging a career as a rapper and he was actually signed to a US record label. So I was quasi managing him, helping him with you know, the commercial aspects of his business early on in his career. And you know we would travel to the US quite a lot because he was signed to a US label, spending time there. And I was the guy who had a hundred notes in his iPhone of companies and ideas that he wanted to build. And there was one summer, and it was in 2014, that you know the record label had kind of flown us out to, to LA. And I met, it was the night that I first, for the first time I met my co-founder Josh, and he's now my co-founder for the second time in Pipe, but originally in Skirt. I met him because he had just graduated and, and uh, was building his company it was a YC back company Y Combinator which you know, for UK listeners it's a lot like entrepreneur first very similar to what Matt's building in the UK which is an incredible program by the way and Y Combinator is kind of like the pinnacle program in the US for, for startups to go through accelerators and Josh had just been through that he was actually at the time the youngest person to ever go through just an incredibly talented guy and he had tracked down my. My, my friend, who was a rapper at the earliest stages in, in his career, because it was what the, the company that Josh was building was a big data music analytics company. So he was in Atlanta at the time. He'd flown to LA to meet with a bunch of artists that that they discovered, and you know, I always remember my friend. I, I remember it so vividly. He said to me, you know, because I have a computer science background. He said to me, Harry. There's a bunch of computer geeks that are coming to the, to the studio tonight. They want to talk to me about some business. I need you to come because I have no idea what they want. And I say, sure, sounds interesting. I'd love to meet some people in tech. And lo and behold, you know, fast forward 12 hours of conversation at, at this studio. Uh, it was Atlantic Studios in Cawenga in, in, in L.A. I pitched Josh probably 50 out of the 100 ideas that I had in my notes And I just felt this instant connection where we were kind of like riffing and it was finally someone who didn't think I was too crazy to be pulling off these ideas. And I didn't know at the time, but Josh was actually going through an acquisition process for his big data music analytics company. And in the back of his mind, he was thinking about what do I want to do next? So the timing was all just very serendipitous. And one of those ideas that I pitched him was what became Skirt. And what Skirt was, was at the time... There was an app called Hotel Tonight. I don't know if you remember that app. And it was a sort of three sided marketplace where you had Hotel Tonight in the middle and you had hotels with underutilized inventory and primarily business travelers that wanted to get a last minute deal on that underutilized inventory contained within one application. I I was a user, I I loved it. It's now been acquired by Airbnb, it became a really cool company. And I was thinking to myself, you know, what? Other vertical could this be applied to? And I felt, much like you, you know, car rental was fundamentally broken. And I also felt like the future of ownership wasn't full-time. You know, car ownership wasn't... Everyone was talking about autonomous cars, et cetera, but there was going to be a long period of time before we got to full autonomy. I felt like there was a better way. And the idea that I pitched was effectively Hotel Tonight for car rentals, wherein you'd have this beautiful, seamless booking experience within the app. Two taps, your credit card was saved in the app. And by the way, this all seems very obvious today, sort of six, seven years later, but there was nothing like it in 2014. And the car would just turn up to your door. It would come to you instead of having to wait in line and you know, go through this horrible, horrible rental process that we've all been through. And that grew into a pretty large operation. We, we grew it to 120 full-time employees, almost 4,000 part-time employees that were actually delivering the vehicles. We launched in about five major cities. Uh, We raised venture funding from this, uh, a small uh, VC firm out of LA called Upfront Ventures. And we were kind of off to the races and we were were doing everything sort of by the Silicon Valley playbook. And from sort of conception, when I pitched Josh to when we actually moved into a one-bedroom apartment and started sort of pitching to raise money and starting the business, it was only four months. I had gone back to London. I dropped everything, moved out to the US, and just sort of plonked myself in a one-bedroom apartment, and that grew to a two-bedroom apartment, three-bedroom, four-bedroom, sort of scaled with the employee headcount until we finally, you know, got got quite a large office. So yeah, that that was how we that was the the formation of Skrubb, and also uh, my first entrance into the US. That's what allowed me and afforded me the opportunity to move to the US and you know, legally be able to work here and get a visa and get sponsored by a company that I created.
1: And um, What happened? So, because um, it was very random, but I I was having dinners in LA uh, every so often when I'd go there, as you, as you probably know, with different well-known entrepreneurs in different spaces. And I happened to go for a dinner with the co-founder of Fair.com. And that was when I found out that you guys had been acquired by them because I didn't actually know that so yeah, how did that all happen? So so first
0: of all, Scott's incredible. He's a mentor of mine. So we've grown the business over about three and a half years. Uh, we were at about a $30 million revenue run rate, incredibly operationally complex business. We needed to raise a large Series B to really take it to the next level. And we were actually approached by one of our, our partners because we, we didn't own any inventory, right? We actually partnered with rental car companies, large and small car dealerships to actually leverage their underutilized inventory. And one of our partners was one of the big publicly traded rental car companies. And, you know, we'd been working with them for about a year at the time, and they approached us with uh, an acquisition offer. And it was the first, you know, real sort of M&A process that my co-founder Josh and I had ever even contemplated going through. So we were relatively naive. This sort of speaks to Silicon Valley playbook culture. You know, you raise money enough for about 18 months of survival, and then about three or four months before you're about to run out of money, you go and raise the next round because you want your KPIs and your metrics to be as up and to the right as possible. So we, that's exactly where we were when this was happening. And then we got totally distracted from the fundraise because we got this acquisition offer, which was you know, lovely. We were going we to move forward with it. So we signed, signed the LOI and then we opened up the data room and we you know we had the data room already prepared because we were out fundraising for our series b and i always remember i remember where i was the guy the guy called me uh the head of A there and he called me and he said harry you're out of business in three months i said no we're not what do you mean he said well you've got three months of cash left i said well, well yeah you know that's how startups work we raise money every every couple of years but if we're, you know, if we're being acquired by you, we're not out of business. <laughs> I assume you're gonna take over our payroll. And he said, no, 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 look, we're a publicly traded company, you know, we don't move that fast. It's gonna take six to 12 months to, to close this transaction. And my heart just sunk, because I knew that our three months was actually more like two months in reality, the rate that we were growing, right? So, you know, I shit myself and, the deal completely fell apart. And I called my investors and explained what had happened. And one of those investors was BMW. We had a strategic investor in BMW. And BMW were actually part of that billion dollar round in Fair.com. So we had a mutual investor in BMW. And Fair was headquartered in Santa Monica. So they were the only other sort of automotive focused startup that was kind of like hot and up and coming in LA at the time. So Scott and I, I'm sure, were like tangentially aware of each other, but we'd never actually met at the time. And, you know, fast forward two weeks to Scott's credit. I mean, he's just an incredible operator. He just had the deal done with us within two weeks, right? So two weeks later, after that call from the publicly traded company calling the deal off, we were being acquired by Fair.com. And fundamentally, what they wanted us for was because... The consumer application layer that you fell in love with, that doesn't just happen with an app. The app is just the consumer application layer. We had built an entire transportation, logistics, fleet management system. That was our real IP. That's the stuff that was really, really hard to build. And that's what FAIR needed because they were about to have hundreds of thousands of cars in their fleet and they hadn't built the back end yet. So, Scott, saw our team, saw our technology, and within a couple of weeks, snapped it up. So it was a soft landing for us. It was it was not the outcome that we wanted with the publicly traded company. But in hindsight, if I knew what I knew was going to happen over the next couple of years and being able to work for Scott and learn from him, I would have done it all over again every day of the week because that, that two-year earnout that, that Josh and I had, where we were sort of thinking about what we wanted to do next, but also working on FAIR... Uh, and learning from Scott was just invaluable.
1: And can you speak to any of the details in the t- uh, in the terms of the deal? And I guess like not just even speaking about the crude part, which is money, um, but also the relationship with upfront ventures, right? Like no seed, no seed fund is looking to invest in a business like yours and exit by series B. So how do conversations like that go as well?
0: They, they were actually, all of our investors were incredibly supportive because Scott, had taken true Car public and that was another la based unicorn he had previously taken a, a, a company public fair became a unicorn very very early on and it became the hottest tech deal in la that no investors could really get into because scott had raised money from you know a variety of different sources so the opportunity to get onto the cap table of fair and become sort of merging into become part of the next unicorn and kind of fly over a couple of rounds of funding at Skirt was appealing to our investors. So we actually had a lot of support and a lot of the investors that we worked with in our last company are actually investors in us to, to this day and, and close friends.
1: And was it a, was it, a, are you able to say whether it was a share, like all share deal? Was there uh, shares and cash, like anything that you can actually do to educate you uh, listeners is super useful because obviously there's different different kinds of exits and we're here to learn. m and is a complex
0: thing. And this was my first time kind of really learning about it. It was a combination of both, but all of the cash went to pay off debt that we had on our balance sheet. So that went straight to the banks. And then the rest was equity. So when people ask me, you know, how much did you make from that deal? I'm like, I don't know yet. Let's see, Let's see how the equity performs. I think with most acquisitions, wherein you're not in control uh, true control of the outcome you kind of have to write it off in your mind and just focus on the next next stage of your career I, I, I can't afford to just sit back and hope that you know someone else takes my equity in, in that company and makes it into something I, I'm, I'm in here building my own thing again
1: 100%. Okay, right. So let's get into it. You are a shareholder now in a one of the most exciting unicorns in the automotive space. You are doing a two year earnout where you're learning a lot from a brilliant mentor. And you're with your co founder pontificating over what the next big thing is. And where does pipe fit into the mix? So what is pipe
0: pipe is a trading platform uh, for a new asset class that asset class is recurring revenue, and the assets that are actually traded on the platform are the underlying contracts or subscriptions of these companies with recurring revenues that allow them to trade them with institutional investors on the other side of our platform for upfront cash, so as if their customers had prepaid them upfront for the year. It's a cash flow operating partner for recurring revenue generating businesses, which are Let's face it, most businesses in the world right now, if they're not generating recurring revenues, they're trying to think about how they can move to a subscription-based model or at least some element of. So we're really kind of riding that kind of um, fundamental shift in how businesses think about providing service to their customers. We call it the subscriptionification of everything. And we're providing the financing platform for the next generation of these companies.
1: Okay, that makes sense. I get it. So if you have a packaged up revenue, recurring revenue deal, you put it on the platform and say this is how much it's worth over the course of a year, what would you pay for it to have it up front? And, and therefore you get the money in advance, right? Yeah, it's we've made it much more
0: seamless than that. There's no talking that needs to take place pipe handles, everything. You simply connect your existing billing management systems and your accounting systems. And within 24 hours, we're able to give you a bid price, which is the amount of cents on the dollar or pence on the pound for the annualized value of the contract that the investors are willing to pay. Typically today, and this is going to date itself if we do our job right, this statement here, we see the market clearing price for contracts be between 90 to 95 cents on the dollar, so a 5 to 10% discount to the annualized contract value. Compare that to you know the twenty to thirty percent discounts to top line revenue that companies are willing to offer, mostly you know SaaS companies, subscription based companies, to their customers to lock in that upfront prepayment, and it's a no brainer deal, right? Where everyone's happy. Um, the reason I say that I hope it dates itself is because even in the year since our founding, you know that's that bid price we've been able by just bringing more liquidity to the other side of our marketplace, we've been able to drive it up by about. you know, from 85 to 90 cents to 90 to 95 cents. Our goal is to get it to as close to 100 cents on the dollar as possible.
1: Next up, we'll hear about Pipe's meteoric rise and how a Twitter DM led to an eyebrow raising investment round from some of the biggest players in the business world. Back in a mo. Of the six UK unicorns who have exited, can you guess what they all have in common? They've all been advised by our latest partner Deloitte, and there's good reason for that. I know the joy and pain that comes with scaling a company fast. You need to focus on growth, your team, and customers, but often your attention is taken away by must-dos in areas like finance and compliance. I'm talking about headaches, like making sure you're charging VAT correctly on a new product, or your intellectual property as watertight, or having the right corporate structure for international expansion. These are complicated areas that you're really not trying to innovate in. So you need a partner like Deloitte who knows them inside out so you don't screw them up, and you get more time and increase your chances of success. So... Whether you're an early stage startup or an international scale up, check out Deloitte's high growth team to help find the right answers faster. Search Deloitte private to find out more. Before they'd written a single line of code, Harry and his co-founders Josh and Zane secured $6 million of pre-seed funding based on the business idea and narrative alone. It took them just 13 minutes to convince legendary investor and co-founder of PayPal, David Sachs, that their idea was worth backing towards the end of 2019. This is when things really started to get crazy. The small founding team of Six smashed out a beta in January and February of 2020, and in the years since, they've added over a billion dollars of liquidity to their trading platform signed up over 3,000 companies, and have just now announced a new round of strategic funding from some of the biggest names in business. What. A. Year. So go on then, let's hear the story of this brand new strategic round that started with a Twitter DM.
0: It all started with a DM on Twitter from a pseudonymous account that shall remain nameless. They write incredible Wall Street-style analysis on our industry, fintech and the broader ecosystem. And I'm, I'm an avid follower of the account, and many other people probably are too. It's got quite a lot of followers. And they started engaging with me and DMing me after we made the announcement in June of our last round when we kind of went public with, with what we were doing. And this was early August, late July, early August of last year. And we were just sort of you know talking shop for a couple of days and then you know i think he had the confidence then to you know say okay this is who i actually am and he was very had very close ties to a large private equity shop run by jim Palotta, who is a legendary hedge fund investor and now a legendary sort of private equity family office investor in the markets and cut a long story short we went from twitter dm talking shop to two weeks later jim Saying, I want to you know buy a piece of this company, and we didn't need the money. So we started riffing with Jim about how you know what it would look like to put together a really strategic syndicate type round of all the big ecosystem players in our industry. So as we think about that, you know you've obviously seen the the press announcement now we ended up raising fifty million dollars from all of these strategics. You know it's Shopify, Slack, Hubspot, OkTA. Mark Benioff, Michael Dell, Jamath Palihapitiya, all for similar but different, unique reasons. We wanted all of these people and are so blessed and fortunate to have these people on our cap table. And it's all about partnership. We think about distribution, we think about customer acquisition. You know, these cust- our customers are customers of these companies, and this is where they live every day. Now we are one degree of separation away from these customers. Uh, and we can add a tremendous amount of value through partnership with the broader ecosystem, the software and subscription-based company ecosystem. So this was about bringing the power players onto our cap table and creating an effective moat around distribution. That was the, the premise for this round. And when you ask if it's sort of bittersweet, you know, selling a stake in the company, the answer is no. I mean, first of all, you know, we we don't disclose valuation, but you know, we named our price because we didn't need the money so we were able to negotiate very favorable terms for the company and you know i think for for the investors that are investing they're not even necessarily price sensitive to a degree because they're investing for strategic reasons as well for the partnership and to have some skin in the game for the upside and be really committed to the company so that's how the round came together it took a it took many many months of Of work to to put it together, because getting publicly traded companies to invest directly off the balance sheet is no mean feat. It's not like a 24 hour decision, like a venture venture capital investor. So we put a lot of work into putting this putting this round together, but it's really already starting to pay off.
1: How like how have you found the differences between what Harry Hurst the leader was like at skirt versus how Harry Hurst the leader is at pipe? Well, I think I've
0: matured significantly in the last seven years because I just learned a lot. And I don't necessarily even just mean sort of matured on a personal level, matured in my understanding of how to build businesses and how, uh, how to deal with people that are on the journey with you. One thing that I try to really impress upon other founders is there is no right or wrong way to build a company. There should be no specific playbook on how to build a venture-backed company. I think that it's about time that founders take all of the good fortune that they're given and how they're treated by their investors in founder-friendly terms and start really thinking about how do you become more team-friendly? Because being a founder is actually like kind of like a bullshit title. I think people people talk about like, oh, it's the founder of this company, it's the founder of this company. But realistically, you can be the founder of a company and work there for two weeks, right? And you're still known as the founder of the company. But really what you did was come up with the idea. If you're the founder CEO of a company and you spend many, many years building the company, that's a whole different level, right? But they're two separate things. Being a CEO is a job title. You just happen to work for a company that you incorporated, right? You're nothing without the team that you have. And I think founders sort of know that and recognize that. But in the way that they actually implement certain things, like how they afford people stock options, how they actually grant equity, how how they think about corporate benefits. The ping pong table isn't important here, guys. Like, that's not the important thing. That's not the thing that, that changes people's lives. Culture, I, I think that culture is based significantly more on how, how your team treat each other on a day-to-day basis than how they necessarily are afforded the ability to interact with each other, especially in a remote world where there are no ping pong tables. There are no, you know, here's a bunch of snacks and stuff. I'm not saying those things aren't great. Like it's, it's cool to have a nice working environment, but I think for too long, companies have kind of had this undertone of a toxic culture, masked, all of these fantastical things in Silicon Valley. And I think, you know, if you watch the show Silicon Valley, it's, it's the irony of it was well covered there. But, you know, we've, Josh and I have really enacted, and, and Zane as well, our co-founder and CTO, have really enacted certain principles from day one. For example, we grant people actual equity in the company. Every person that works at Pipe is a real shareholder. They don't have the option to own stock. They actually own stock. So what does that do? Not only is it great for the team because the capital gains tax clock starts from day one. There's all sorts of benefits in uh, not having to, you know, uh, having to exercise options or worry about exercising options if you want to leave a company at some point. But what does that do for the company as a whole? It gives people, you, you want people as a founder to have an owner's mentality. Well, make them owners then. Don't just give them the option to own. Actually make them owners. So I think, you know, if there's something that I can take from our time at Skirt, through our time at Fair, and then our time at Pipe thus far, we've built the company with quite a contrarian structure, but it's really been working.
1: I'd love to know what the toughest moment you think you've had in your career is and what you learned from it.
0: I think the absolute toughest moment was in 2016. I mean, it was about a year and a half or so before we sold the company. I suddenly overnight got hit with this severe anxiety and started for the first time in my life. And anxiety is an incredible common thing, common thing to, to experience. But I started experiencing it in a really real way to where it was debilitating in some cases. And it felt like it came overnight, but having gone through, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and thinking about how to actually resolve the issues that I was facing I learned that it was actually building up over my entire life and it just hit me like a ton of bricks overnight and I was effectively immobilized and it's taken me years of work on myself to learn to live with it and to get over it and prevent it from stopping me from from being successful which you know I'm proud of myself for, for being able to do that and I still work on it every day but, you know, man, that, that first year or so experiencing it was, was was hell. It was really scary. So I guess what I've learned is that it's not just a buzzword. Mental health is a, is a real thing. And I actually don't think that it should be referred to as mental health. And I, I know you can, you can um, relate to this. I don't know your personal story necessarily as it relates to mental health. But I know the business that you're building relates closely to brain health and mental health. And I just think it should be called health, right? Because mental health can be just as impairing as physical ailments, if not more so in some cases, right? So yeah, I I think
1: the biggest thing I've learned is not to even think about it as mental health, just think about it as health. Exactly. And understand that every day you're working on it, just like you're working on your health.
0: Yeah. And it's not work. And by the way, it's not working on solving it. It's working on living with it because you always have your mental health to to protect.
1: Last question, which is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given, and what is your best piece of advice for listeners to take away from this episode and your journey? Well, the best advice I've been given, and I can actually prove
0: that that this worked out for me as well, the advice was given to me by a mentor of mine, and it was that don't hold back on the idea on discussing the ideas that you have if you want to be a founder it pains me when people say to me oh, i've got this i've got this amazing idea but i can't talk about it i think that's going to hold you back and i think that you know ideas need to be open sourced and it's the execution of the idea that's proprietary in nature it's not the idea itself times out of 100 Uh, and if you believe or rather if you don't believe that you're the best person to execute on this idea or at least to put together the team that's going to execute on this idea it doesn't matter how many people you tell or don't tell you're going to get out executed it's not always first mover by the way travis at uber completely out executed the guys at lyft lyft actually came first uber out executed so and that's okay that's market dynamics and lyft have done well in the end but the point being here is that i encourage entrepreneurs and founders that are getting started out to talk to as many people that they trust about their ideas take the feedback practice getting other people excited about your ideas speak to people who are going to give you um, harsh feedback real critique and practice objection handling and it also allows you to kind of develop your ideas as you go along and the reason i can sort of like not just preach this and i actually practice this if you remember earlier in our conversation i talked to you about that night that i met josh and i had a hundred plus ideas written down in my book in my notes rather in my iphone and i was pitching him all of them all of them that i thought were the top 20 or 30 i was pitching them and that made my career because I've got the opportunity to work with Josh build our first company together and here we are building our second company together and that wouldn't have happened if I would have been coy and said you know I've got some ideas but I can't tell you about them so my, that would be my, my piece of advice.
1: Harry it's been a massive pleasure thank you so much for joining me sharing the pipe journey massive congratulations on the announcement of your round and all the hard work the 20 years of effort that's gone into this moment I'm hyped for the next 20 years and Very, very lucky to call you a friend and to continue watching on your journey, mate. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top.
1: There will be two episodes each week, packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow.
0: Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.
1: Next week on Secret Leaders. I think it's easy to look back and this model looks like it's so obvious. But for the first four or five years that we were doing this, There was nothing obvious about this. And basically everyone told us we were going to lose 100% of our money. And all the finance folks now are like, oh, this is great. You built a new asset class. But all Andrew and I knew every single day is that we were trying to to fix life for a founder. That was Michelle Romano, the CEO and founder of ClearBank, the biggest e-commerce investor in the world with over 3,000 brands funded and over £1 billion in capital deployed. So how did she do it? Well, tune in, or you'll miss out. If you enjoyed the show, then please get your phone out and send a link to a friend who you think needs to hear it. And if you really loved it, then why not leave us a review too? You can now also find me on Clubhouse at Dan murray This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Surter. It was produced by Rich Martell with editing done by Lower Street Media.